Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Here's our big idea this morning. We can pray because God forgives. We can pray because God forgives. This morning, I want to zero in in particular. We last week kind of zoomed out and saw the whole of verses 1 through 18 of Matthew chapter 6, but I want to zoom in on this all-important prayer that Jesus gives us, this format for prayer. And I think as we look, we're going to see this general statement come to be true. We can pray because God forgives. And we're going to see this kind of in these three different phases. In verses 7 through 8, we're going to see that we can't manipulate God. Verses 9 through 13 God-honoring prayer submits itself to the Lord. We can't manipulate God, but instead we're going to put ourselves beneath the Lord's will and his desire. And then finally in verses 14 through 15, that forgiveness then is authenticating. You can see we're making a kind of argument. Can't manipulate God. I need to submit to God. Therefore, this rhythm of forgiveness is an authenticating rhythm. What we want to see is just unpack this kind of in its depth, in its its fullness, and I trust that the Lord will meet us in the midst. I want to pray one more time this morning that the Lord lets his word settle on our hearts and on our minds. We ask now that we would see with eyes that you give, that we would hear with ears that you give, that you would impress these all-important words upon our hearts and upon our mind, not just so that we can pray better, so that we can pray better as an expression of our deep, passionate love for you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you've had the experience of a deeply valued friendship and some type of wrong is performed in that friendship. Maybe you've had uh, a friendship from high school or otherwise college or wherever it may be, and some type of, of sin is performed, some type of wrongdoing is performed, and one, what once was a vibrant, warm friendship is now marked by cold conversation. Conversation is slowed down, or, or maybe both you and your friend didn't speak for a time. But then something happens, right? The grievance is brought to the service. service. It's confessed and repented of. Or maybe as it's discussed, it's recognized that there's just a big misunderstanding. And what happens then is sweet, right? Regardless, the relationship isn't merely restored. It's actually stronger than what it once was. Because now you have the confidence that you can work through those difficulties together, that this person's not just going to cut bait and run, that they're committed to me, and that we can work in patterns of confession and repentance together. It's like that broken broken bone that you had when you were a kid that your, your doctor told you would grow back stronger, right? When we mend relationships, those relationships don't just grow back to what they once were, they come back in the thickness 
uniqueness and fullness of this gospel rootedness. This is an, an exact analogy of how God works with us, right? If there's any kind of uh, difference between us and the Lord, some kind of sin, it's always on our side of the equation, isn't it? God himself never wrongs us. God never violates us. God never uh, breaks his trust with us. But there is or has been a break in relationship with him. And his forgiven work, forgiving work, strengthens our relationship to him, doesn't it? As we dive in this morning, we want to recognize that we fundamentally, as Jesus has kind of introduced this sermon on the map, or, or, sermon on the map, this is going to be a long morning, sermon on the mount. So you think a pastor should know that term by now, right? As we introduce this sermon on the mount, Jesus has directed our attention to the shortcomings of all mankind. He's talked about what it is for us to follow the law. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I tell you, anyone who says to his brother, empty head, has committed murder in his heart. You have heard it said, you shall not uh, commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who's looked at a woman with lust has committed adultery in his heart. And he kind of couches this in these two different phrases. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And at the end of chapter five, he looks and he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He's highlighting the broken relationship that man has with God. And here, he starts to unpack some healthy rhythms. He's saying, this is what giving looks like. Don't give on the street corner so that everybody can see. He talks about prayer. He says, don't shout your prayers on the street corner, but go into your closet in your house. After this passage in verses 16 through 18, he's going to talk about fasting. He's saying, hey, don't make yourself look weak and pitiful. Rather, wash your face and walk out in the midst of your fast so that what you do is in secret before the Lord Jesus is highlighting the brokenness of our current rhythms of righteousness and calling us to a better righteousness. In the midst of all of this discussion, in verses 7 through 15, he couches this discussion on prayer. And this is unique because there's kind of a formula that happens in, in chapter 6, and we highlighted this last week. Look at verses, chapter 6, verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. So there's this kind of recognition. It happens in verse 2, in verse 5, in verse 16. As you, when you do this, don't do it like the hypocrites. And then he goes on and he says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Like these people that do this thing have already received their reward in full. And then he highlights a different rhythm in verses 3 and 4 or in verse 6 or in verse 17 and 18. And he shows us the different way. But when we get to verse 7 through 15, he does it differently, doesn't he? doesn't talk about the hypocrites. He talks about the Gentiles. He doesn't talk about uh, some of the things that um, like the hypocrites do. He, he kind of unpacks it a little bit differently. And so we're going to start with our first point here. In verses 7 and 8, we can't manipulate God. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Gentiles were 
of this rhythm of speaking so many words that they were to be heard. It's worth noting that this is the one place in this passage where Jesus kind of breaks rhythm from his formula as he's talked about. He's no longer talking about hypocrites. He doesn't say they've received the reward in full. He doesn't speak about what the Father sees in his reward as he does in verses 4 and 6 and 18, but the essentials are still here. Jesus is calling out this kind of wonky life of prayer amongst the Gentiles. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Apparently, the the spiritual rhythm of these Gentiles in their midst was such that they were supposed to speak so many words. You ever get frustrated by someone in your small group that just keeps praying, right? Okay, that's a good thing, right? But Jesus is calling them out saying, recognize that they're keeping up these words in order to be heard. That's their kind of theology. The more I speak, the more desperate I am, the more likely I am to be heard. This isn't foreign to us in the scriptures when Elijah has his showdown with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. Look at this verse. They called or they took the bull that was given them. This is the prophets of Baal. They prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. See, they kept calling out until something changed. (laughs) It's as if the multitude of their words Uh, and the strength of their passion would incite God to act. Does this sound familiar? Let me ask you, do you have a theology of prayer that hinges upon your passion, upon your words, upon your incessance in prayer? Some of us think this way. The more passionately I plead with God, the more likely he is to answer that prayer. Or the more often I come to God in prayer, and the longer-winded my prayers are, the more likely he is to answer those things. You just stop and say, oh, that works. But notice how Jesus critiques this in verse 8. He, he goes on in verse 8, he says, Do not be like them, for your Father knows that what you need before you ask Him. The Father knows our needs. We don't have to speak them. So the obvious question is, why do we pray? If, if God knows everything that I need to ask before I ask it, why do I have to pray? Why do I have to speak these things? See, one of prayer's most important functions is to express our trust in God. Prayer is meant to strengthen the idea that we need God's help and presence amidst our way-making in the world. We actually need God to be with us in some sense. So even though he knows the need, we speak the need to him so that we recognize his presence and his power to change those things. Particularly, Jesus's point is to say, your verbose prayers aren't any more effective than your simple one-word prayers. God knows your need without all the description and the flowery language. The underneath this is a theology. This theology that we can't tri- twist God's arm in prayer. Thinking about this this week, a child can motivate their parents in different ways, can't they? 
They can get their their mom or their dad to do what they want. Some of you are children here this morning. You know this inherently. You know how to manipulate your parents. You can twist their arms as it were. There's two fundamental reasons that you can manipulate them. One, they want to be loved by you. Two, at some point they failed you. Those two things are a perfect equation for you just to get what you want, right? Don't you love me? I remember uh, a friend of mine was telling me one time, his wife, uh, they had uh, an oldest daughter who was a toddler at this point in time, and she was laying on the floor in the living room. And as the mom was walking through, she accidentally stepped on her daughter's face. And from that point forward, every time there would be like this moment of discipline that was, and this young girl could sense that the tension was rising. She would say, mommy, mommy, please don't step on my face. She was manipulating But God isn't manipulated because he needs nothing and he's done no wrong. See, God doesn't need anything. We refer to this as his aseity or his self-sufficiency. See, the problem with this Gentile prayer is that it thinks if, if God could only see what I would see, he would change things. But God is in of himself, in and of himself, self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything hear me clearly, there is nothing you or I could offer God to make him do your bidding. He lacks nothing. He's complete within himself. There's nothing you or I could offer to God to manipulate him, to twist his arm, to make him do what we want and what we desire. It's interesting as you go back and you read the records of Greek mythology, these gods and goddesses, they all are beset by weakness. So as you understand the life of uh, the god of war, Ares, he's depicted as just a moron. And he's manipulated time and time again. The gods and goddesses are manipulated by their desire for shiny metallic things, for sex, for money, for whatever else. But our God is not to be manipulated by anything that he himself has created. He is in and of himself self-sufficient. He doesn't need it. And he's not to be manipulated by it. But it's not just that he's self-sufficient. That God is perfectly righteous and he doesn't owe us anything. If God is completely righteous, he's done no wrong to us. He never acts out of guilt or shame toward us. He has never mistreated us. He's never wronged us. And therefore, he owes us nothing. And thus, to be mad at God is a foolish thing, even though I understand the sentiment behind it. If God has only done righteousness, there is no sense in which he owes us anything. Our very existence is a sign of his grace and our obligation to him, not his obligation to us. See, this is where prayer begins. God is to be trusted, not manipulated. Our God is to be trusted, not manipulated. We are to conform to his will rather than him conforming to ours. We're like that child who wants to convince its parents, his parents or her parents, to replace all salad with chocolate, to increase the wage of their allowance, but decrease the amount of responsibility We want all of the benefits with no obligations. 
See, our life in prayer is not for us to manipulate like a sinful child. Our life in prayer is to be conformed to the image of our Father. So I think this is where Jesus heads next when he tells us how to pray in verses 9 through 13. See, prayer submits to God's will. Look at what he says in verses 9 through 13. Listen to this prayer that we've heard so often. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation and deliver us from evil. There's a recognition of God's holiness and his priority in verses 9 and 10. What he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, I was on Jeopardy. It was one of the questions or the answers in Jeopardy, right? It says, our Father who art in heaven, this is your name. And nobody, none of the contestants got it right. Hallowed, it's this word. It means holy, right? And Jesus is starting off this prayer with this fundamental recognition of who God is. This prayer begins by reorienting us to heavenly things, to God himself. It acknowledges who God is first and foremost. He's our father. He's in heaven. His name is holy. And secondly, it tunes us into the things that God wants to do on the earth. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Our prayer should start with this recalibration to the heart of God. We should notice that that when we request our selfishness of God, it's a waste of our breath. God is preoccupied with his agenda for his world in his holiness and righteousness and self-sufficiency. He has an agenda for what's happening here on the earth, and our job is to submit to that agenda. See, the viability of our request has to do with how it fits into God's working in the world. And if I ask for something that is just rooted and laced with selfishness, I shouldn't find it or expect it to be answered in faithfulness to the Lord's will. But once our hearts are tuned into this wavelength, we can turn our attention to our needs. This is what he does in verses 11 through 13, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. We also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's start with verse 11 there. Give us this day our daily bread. Some of you say, I'm gluten-free. What do I do? See, I think we know that we're asking for more than bread. It's a recognition of all of our physical need. The air we breathe food we eat, the shelter we sleep in, the medicine our bodies need. Lord, give these things to me. I'm not reliant upon the pharmacist. I'm not reliant upon the farmer. I'm not reliant upon something else. It's ultimately you that these things are brought to me through. Martin Luther had this notion. He called it the masks of God. And he says, you know, when the farmer puts the food out in the market and I purchase it, Farmer is the mask of God. It's God providing. It's, it's as if the farmer were God himself, but with a mask of a farmer on, right? 
that God is actually providing for his people through the hands of the farmer, or through the hands of the pharmacist, or through the hands of whoever else it might be. What you need is not a better doctor. What you need is not a better uh, financial advisor. What you need is not a better whatever else it may be. What you need is God's provision for you. God is the one who meets our physical needs because he governs the entirety of the world. He gives to each as he would have need. Whatever we have, we have because the Lord has provided. Isn't that what James says? He says, you know, every good thing, every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. God is the one who is meeting your needs. And we might just fight against that as Americans. We say, no, 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 I work hard. I grind my fingers down to the bone. I went to college. I did this or I did that. I'm providing for my needs. Just wait. Wait till that moment hits where you have cancer, you're bedridden. Wait till that time when the economy dries up. You're out of control in ways you don't even think about. And the lie of American success is that we are self-reliant people. We recognize here when we come to this prayer that we need bread given to us. It's not just bread. It's not just the physical needs, the physicality of our life that we need the Lord. And we need the Lord for our spiritual needs. In verses 12 through 13, he highlights this, and he starts with forgiveness. In verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. He's going to expand on this in verses 14 through 15, but the kernel is here. We are to be recipients and dispensers of grace. Spiritually speaking, you are in need. You are not self-sufficient. You are not more spiritually aware than those around you. That's not how you came to know Christ. It's not just this need of forgiveness. He highlights this need for protection in verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're reminded that James tells us that that God doesn't tempt anyone in James chapter 1, but here Jesus tells us to pray that God doesn't allow us to go into these positions of temptation. Don't lead us into these spots where we might be tempted, that God himself is even sovereign over where and when we might be tempted. This is linked also to being, being given over to evil, verse 13, but deliver us from evil or the evil one, some translations would say. The temptation's end is evil in you. What seems innocent enough, that small spot where you might break the will of God, where you might do that thing that you know is wrong and press into it, that the end of that temptation is not just one more little sin. John Owen says in his mortification of sin, he says that sin's end is always death. It's always pressing for you to give up your faith, for for you to eventually uh, kind of apostatize yourself, to give up on your faith and to embrace your eternal death. See, by avoiding temptation, we are preserved from evil. Years ago, when I was in high school, I had a friend. And after we graduated high school, uh, this friend went off to Argentina. His name was Seth Anderson. He was a really good friend of mine. And he went to Argentina for a year, and he did schooling down there. And after a year's time, he came back, 
and he brought a, a whole suitcase of this stuff called mate. And he was so excited to show it to us. So he gets out. There's like every addict has a ritual, right? Like he's there. He's, it looks like a meth lab in front of us. Like he's just making all this stuff, making mate. And he hands over the cup to me and I drink it. And it tastes like licking a bowl of potpourri. I don't know how else to describe it. It was not good. It tasted disgusting. But he loved it. He loved this stuff. For Seth, it was more than just a drink. It was a transportation into a different place, different time. It had meaning beyond the particular kind of ritual that was there. It, it took him to a different spot on the planet. It was something that meant a lot more to him than it did to me. See, our prayers are meant to reorient us to a different place, aren't they? They're meant to kind of take us out of our moment and to remind us that there's a sovereign God in heaven who controls all things. It's a reminder that prayer is effective in this world. James one or James 5 says this, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I remember reading this in the NIV as a, growing up as a kid. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Prayer works in accord with God's sovereign plan. It's by Moses' intercession on Israel's behalf in Exodus 33 that God kind of relents of his anger and wrath against Israel because Moses prayed and interceded. It's because of Nineveh's repentance and prayer that God relents of the city's destruction in Jonah chapter 3 and 4 reading an article by the late R.C. Sproul, and he was describing, you know, he says, if someone were to come to me and say, does prayer change the mind of God? I would say no. But if they were to come to me and say, does prayer change things? I would say yes. Somehow prayer has this effectiveness that it changes the world around us without changing necessarily the mind of God or the plan of God. God has so worked his plan in such a way that he banks upon the prayers of his people, the intercession of his people to drive his hand to a different behavior, a different action. See, prayer is not just effective in the world, though. It's effective in us. Prayer recalibrates my desires to God's desires. By, by Jesus' model of prayer, we are to pray to a holy God for his established kingdom before we even ask for bread. It reminds us that the working of God in this world is more needed than my food, more needed than my spiritual for. No, I won't say that. See, we recognize that what Jesus is telling us to pray here is to say, Lord, your will be done in me. Your kingdom come, and you provide what I need. I'm trusting you. See, with this in mind, when, when we kind of look and see, God can't be manipulated by our kind of twisting of his arm in verses 7 through 8. Prayer submits to God's will in verses 9 through 13, so that we're putting ourselves under the will of God. Then in verses 14 and 15, we have what seems like a parenthesis actually takes on new meaning. Look at what he says in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, uh, neither will you, your Father forgive your trespasses. See, if it's true that we can't manipulate God, and it's true that prayer acknowledges God's will, then our prayer for forgiveness actually authenticates our relationship with God. 
It's the acknowledgement that I can't manipulate God's understanding of my actions, and it's the understanding that I must submit to God's desire above my own. Asking for forgiveness then leans on both of those attitudes fairly heavily, right? When I go to God in forgiveness, I say, hallowed be your name. When I go to God in forgiveness and, and repentance and say, I want to act differently, it's your kingdom come, your will be done. See, the posture is the same. Jesus makes the same statement here. Verse 14, he says it positively. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And in verse 15, he says it negatively. If you do not forgive others' trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. My patterns of receiving and extending forgiveness serve to verify the nature of my relationship with God. Forgiven people forgive. That's the bottom line. You familiar with what a touchstone is? A touchstone was this rock and different times where if you had a precious jewel of some kind, you could touch it against this, touch, against this touchstone and it would authenticate the the true nature of that precious stone or metal, probably of metals more than stones. Isn't that what forgiveness is here? If forgiveness is operating according to Jesus' desire and plan, it should authenticate what's happening inside of us. If it's not operating according to what Jesus says here, then we have some concerns to think about. I understand that many of us in this room have hard histories with family members and friends. There's a long list of offenses that we can think of that people have done against us. But if you are not in a, at least a posture of readiness and forgiveness, these words should serve as a dire warning to you. If you're not forgiving, perhaps you've not been forgiven. See, our forgiveness of others is a touchstone, a validation of our true forgiveness before the Father. It's not our, our giving. It's not our prayer. It's not our fasting. Our forgiveness shows that we understand God's grace to us. It's with this that we just step back and take a moment and just consider what Jesus is saying. If what he's saying is true, and I believe it is, that our prayer is fundamentally broken. We pray like the hypocrites or the Pharisees in verses 5. We, we pray in this very public way. But if we pray like Gentiles, we pray in a private way, but with a manipulative bent. Both of these things show my own sinful heart, don't they? The fact is that if we just kind of back up way off of this passage and just think about the whole Bible and its scope, we recognize that our relationship, our access to God has been restored through Christ. 
See, we had lost our access a long time ago. Back in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, God told Adam and Eve, he said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and sure enough, that's what they did. And as they had kids, guess what? They passed on that same kind of sinful orientation to everyone in this room. All of us have kind of inherited this kind of rebellious nature against God. Because of that, our access to God had been lost. You recognize this morning that the Bible tells us that God doesn't hear sinful prayers. There are any number of reasons that the scripture gives us for this. And I've listed just a few here on this slide. James 4, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Psalm 66, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. John chapter 9, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. See, the truth is that if sin stops God from hearing our prayers, no human prayers would ever be heard. Because Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And all the hours spent at various altars, all of the private prayer, all of the public prayers around the world are useless if they are stated from a sinful, divisive heart. No amount of words given can tune God's ear to our cause. Fundamentally, this relationship with God is still at odds in 2023 without the blood of Christ. Thank God this morning. God has restored our access to him through the forgiveness available in Jesus Christ. Notice this fundamental detail in this prayer that's given to us in verse 9. We kind of just passed right by it, but when Jesus tells us how to pray, look who he addresses. Our what? Our Father. Our Father, who we had been alienated from since the Garden of Eden. Our Father, whom we sinned against in so many ways. Our Father, whose will and word we violated time and time again. Jesus tells us to pray confidently to our Father. On what basis? Jesus is telling us to pray with confidence to Him by what means? I remember when we were going through John just a few months ago, there was this discovery. And there's this discussion of relationship that happens in John 15 through 17, where Jesus starts off and he says that we, we were servants. He looks at his disciples and he says, no longer do I call you servants. You were servants. And then he says, you're friends, right? I have called you friends, John 15, for all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Jesus is discussing, because of this crucifixion that's about to happen, because of me going to my impending death, this relationship is about to change. And then on the other side of, of resurrection, and John, actually that reference is wrong, is 2017b. Jesus speaks to Mary and he says, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to what? To my father and your father. To my God. And your God. No longer does he call them slaves. He calls them friends. But now he calls them brothers. Fellow sons. Fellow heirs. Heirs of God. Co-heirs with Christ. See, the access that had been stripped away from us because of our sinfulness has now been restored through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. First John says that now we have confidence. Or 
excuse me, we have an advocate before the Father who pleads his righteousness. We have Jesus Christ, the righteous, who stands at the right hand of God, who sits at the right hand of God and is advocating all the time on our behalf. See, as we have believed in Jesus, we too are included as God's Son. We are united with Christ. We are wrapped up in his righteousness. So that my track record of sin has been buried in the tomb of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and his track record of righteousness is given to me so that I can come before him and make request after request after request and say, Father, please, Father, please, Father, please. Not based upon my good works or my deeds, but based solely upon the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus' perfect life becomes my track record through faith. And now the Father is waiting to hear my prayer. So the upshot of that, Christian, is for you to come to God with confidence. For you to come to God with confidence. We might just do two applications here this morning. The first is if you're here this morning and you have not found forgiveness through the Son, I don't mean this flippantly, but I say that there's no access in prayer for you until that statement of repentance is made and trust in Jesus Christ. There's no prayer that doesn't bounce off the ceiling and return back to you. For those of us who have found forgiveness in Christ, I have three encouragements for you. First, Pray with a big view of God. Cultivate a view of God that sees him as powerful, as self-sufficient, as, as someone that we should submit to rather than someone that we make submit to us. Be diligent to pray so that your heart is brought into conformity to his. Learn to long for his coming kingdom by bringing daily, hourly requests to his throne. Cultivate a massive view of your God. Understand who he is, who he says himself to be in his scriptures, so that you have a massive view of the God to whom you pray to. Secondly, pray with a deep sense of your need. Ask him for bread and forgiveness and protection. Plead with him that he give you everything you need. And don't let a day go by without thinking through your neediness before God's heavenly throne. We should have complementary rhythms there, right? A big, big view of God, a low sense of self. Three, ask like a son. I want to encourage you this morning to ask like you are a son. If you have faith in Christ, know that Jesus' death and resurrection has included you in God's household. Beg and plead with your father that his kingdom might be established on earth. Beg and plead with your father that he might give you your daily bread. Beg and plead with your father that he teach you to forgive as you've been forgiven. Beg and plead with your father that he keep you from temptation, that he deliver you from evil. Beg and plead like you are the son that you are in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if we believe this to be true, if we believe that we are included in Christ, that we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, why are we so slow to go to our Father's throne? 
There is a discrepancy between the theology that we claim to believe and the rhythms of our prayer life. At least I sense that in my own life, right? Why is it that I believe that this is true, that I am given access to God and yet don't take advantage of it regularly? Maybe it is that I don't fully believe what I say I believe. Be those who go with confidence. We love these verses, right? We love Romans chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We love Ephesians chapter 2. By grace, through faith, you've been saved, and this not of yourselves. If those things are true and you're a recipient of grace, let's go to the throne. It's Hebrews chapter 4, right? Let's approach the throne of grace with boldness in time of need. I say this, recognizing my own neediness. Fessed a little bit last week. Every time I preach these words, I I do so with a lump in my throat, recognizing that my rhythms in prayer aren't what they could be. I was joking with someone last week that a few different ways to bring immediate conviction, and one of them is to talk about your prayer life. We always sense that we could do more. More so than sensing that we could do more, I want to draw our attention to doing it right. To going before the throne of God and saying, Lord, I need grace and mercy. I need your presence. I need you. To that end, let's pray this morning. Lord, we ask that you would make us men and women who are reliant upon you. That as we understand the grace that you've given us in Christ, that you might make us men and women who pray. Not to look righteous before others. Not to heap up words before your presence. Men and women who recognize your holiness, desire your kingdom, and ask for your provision your greatest glory and honor. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.